while it certainly wouldn't be outside of the authority of Scripture to preach for two or three or four hours, the Apostle Paul did it, and you know, a wonderful miracle of God was was manifest when the man who fell asleep and fell out of the window and died was resurrected. Uh, however, Paul was very forward in telling the Corinthians that uh, that all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient or prudent. So, I don't intend to stand very long this afternoon. I will would offer to make a deal with you that I'll stay awake if y'all will stay awake, but. Uh, I'm certainly sympathetic to uh, the afternoon condition. We're all familiar with and maybe one of the favorite go-tos from a doctrinal standpoint for believers in the divine purpose in salvation and what we call limited atonement or particular redemption. We go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. When the Holy Spirit uh, dispatched the Lord's angel to appear to Joseph to inform him of the miraculous doings of God, that his espoused wife was with child, not due to any sinful conduct, not by any natural means, but that which is conceived in her, he said, is of the Holy Ghost. The angel appeared to Joseph speaking these words and followed that up saying, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, which means Savior, for he shall save his people from their sins. And thus the New Testament introduces the gospel, the message of our salvation, and the person and work of Jesus Christ, who first and foremost is understood to be our Savior and our King. And both of those things are brought out in this first chapter of Matthew because he begins with a lineage, a heritage of Jesus Christ, which proved that he alone was legally entitled to be called the King of the Jews. He was a descendant of kings. He was the one who was prophesied. Way back in the 49th chapter of Genesis, when God gave a a spirit of prophecy to Jacob, his anointed, and Jacob called forth his 12 sons and spoke prophetic words and words of blessings over each of them, he said to Judah, the scepter shall not depart from between his feet until Shiloh comes this prince of peace, this king of the Jews. And in declaring his impending birth, the angel says, for he shall save his people from their sins. And that is a declaration of God that frames our understanding of what the message we preach is. Salvation is sent forth to the ends of the earth. Salvation is declared in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And the message that we proclaim, the message that we embrace and believe is a message of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the King, the Son of God with power. It's a message we can't communicate with mere words and have people believe it. As we talked about earlier, it can only be received, it can only be believed if there is a heart of faith, of belief within the recipient. And that's why Jesus came preaching his own gospel, declaring his own deity, his own glory, and conducting miraculous works that could not be denied. And yet the wise and educated of his day, the ones who knew the scripture and the prophecy of a coming Messiah, heard the words that he spake like no other man spake. They saw the miracles that he performed, and they cast about for the most ridiculous explanations for how this could be happening without ever contemplating that this was the one that should come, that this was the promised Savior. And it wasn't because of a lack of knowledge. It wasn't because of lack of evidence in the Scripture. It was because they had in them an evil heart, a heart that could not believe that would not believe, a heart that made it so that Jesus could speak to them and say, you believe not because you are not of my sheep. And Jesus could look them in the eye and say, ye shall die in your sins. Why? Because you saw me and you didn't receive me. You didn't believe me. He could say, I didn't come into this world to condemn the world, but 
you're already condemned. Why? Because you believe not. There's a condemnation in rejecting the Word of God. And Jesus came preaching His own everlasting Word, and He was roundly rejected by those that should have received Him. But praise God, we're not left to doubt or to wonder as to the will of God in this matter. In fact, John begins his gospel by saying, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. And in believing in Jesus Christ, there is a certain and sure evidence of salvation, an evidence of belief, an evidence of belonging. And as we read these first words of Matthew's account of the gospel, what do we read? He shall save his people from their sins. Not to die for the sins of all the world, but for the sins of his people, and he shall save his people from their sins. There's certainty. There's authority, there's power. Why? Because He is the sovereign God and He's sovereign. He works His will. He accomplishes all of His pleasure. He shall save His people. But you know, as we consider the idea of salvation and what it means to be saved, again, as we mentioned earlier, so much of the religious world is focused on what does it take to save me? What do I need to get saved? What do we need to save other people? We have loved ones, we want them to be saved. And we ridicule those who say, well, salvation is a process and salvation is something we need to, need to, uh, bring about in our lives or those of the ones that we love. You know, you gotta hear the word, you gotta say a prayer, you gotta take an action and that'll save you. And we say, oh, that's ridiculous. Salvation is of the Lord. We ascribe all glory to God in it, right? But how often do we ourselves begin to restrict our concept of salvation to what it takes to secure one to heaven? We say, well, you have to be born again. You must be born again. So we say, well, they got to be regenerated. The immediate work of the Holy Spirit, they got to live long enough for the Spirit to quicken them, to bring them to life. Oh, and then they'll be saved. Or maybe we say, well, they need to believe, obviously. The evidence of Scripture is those who are saved are those who believe. So they got to hear the gospel. We got to get the gospel to them so then they can be saved. But wait a second, the Scripture goes beyond that. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to save them from their sins. And the concept of salvation, as I understand it, taught in the Scripture is holistic. It's complete. It begins when the Father, before the creation of the world, determined to save His people from their sins. And there was a decision made that we know is the doctrine of election or eternal choosing where God said, I love these individuals. And we don't need to muddy the waters by trying to figure out, well, why did he love me so? The Scripture doesn't tell us that. We know he didn't love me because of what I would do. He didn't love me because of some foreseen attribute. He didn't love you because he knew one day you would do something for his glory. No, God's love is for his own divine reason, and it's without explanation. We don't need to understand it. But salvation began when God chose His people. And salvation continued forth from that point. He's done all things well. He appointed His Son to die as a substitute and a satisfaction for wrath that was well-deserved against all men, but against His people specifically. Christ died for our sins, plural, according to the Scripture. And before the world began, a covenant was made whereby Christ covenanted with the Father, I will take their sins upon me. And I will suffer and I will pay. And I will secure for them a righteousness that they could never attain, that they could never earn. And salvation is found in that act, in that decision, in that commitment. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. What? To redeem them that were under the law. And that covenant of redemption played out when Jesus Christ came according to the Word of God, and the angel said, He shall save His people from their sins. And Christ came into the world, and He lived, and He was righteous, and He was holy, and He was perfect. And He began at about 30 years of age to preach. 
And the message he preached was unlike anything the world had ever heard. It was consistent with the Scripture, completely consistent with Old Testament law, completely consistent with the revealed Word of God to that day, but it was applied in ways that had never been imagined before. And it was declared with absolute certainty, and it came with a imperative, a command that demanded an answer. Jesus said to the poor and afflicted, the needy, the sinners of his day, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You'll in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ said, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you have no part with me. Jesus Christ came declaring truth like the world had never heard. And men followed him. They followed him in faith. They followed him in trust. They followed him declaring with the apostle Peter, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, I'm glad you got that truth. I'm glad you understand that. So I came into this world to serve my God, to do his will, not my own. And the will of the Father is this. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. There I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. And the believer cried out, be it not so to thee, be it far from thee, it can't happen. No, Lord, you're the Savior. We're ready to be saved. Jesus said, this is how salvation works. I give myself, I suffer, I die. And the heart of man rebels against that truth. This can't be. Salvation is seen in Jesus Christ, resolute determination to go to Jerusalem and there to suffer. Salvation is comprehended maybe most clearly when Jesus Christ is nailed to a Roman cross and there cries out in agony. And there his pain is, is witnessed, it's experienced, it's felt. The Apostle John standing at the foot of the cross watching the Savior as he suffered and as he hung there, helpless to do anything for him the thieves on either side railing against him, saying, if you be the Christ, come down off the cross and take us with you. The Roman soldiers laughing and mocking and disparaging. The Jews railing upon him, laughing at him, abusing him. And then the lights go out. The real suffering begins. And we can't even begin to imagine the agony that that physical body was put through, that that soul endured. The Savior suffered in darkness. So that the Son of God, the third person, second person of the Trinity, cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? This, my friends, is salvation. It's your salvation. It's my salvation. You know, one principle of salvation throughout the Scripture is every deliverance is in company with a great judgment. Noah and seven other souls, they were saved by water while the world died and suffered the wrath of God. The Jews were delivered. They were saved from Egyptian bondage. How? Because the Egyptian army was drowned in the flood of the Red Sea. The armies of Israel were saved. They were delivered time after time. How? Because God stepped in and destroyed the enemy. And you and I were saved because the wrath of God was poured out on our substitute poured out on the one righteous one. He shall save his people from their sins. But salvation is comprehended in the reality that that death on the cross was followed up by resurrection. He was raised again for our justification. And in that resurrection, there is a positive declaration that he did finish the work. That the work was final, it was complete, and the sacrifice was accepted. 
Because the Son of God raised, and with Him we all are raised to walk in newness of life. There's an effect in our lives because He raised. Because He lives, we shall live also. So salvation is seen in the resurrection from the dead. All of this is, is put in a nutshell in Roman, I mean, 1 Corinthians 15. As Paul says, this is the gospel. Christ came according to the scriptures. He lived according to the scriptures, died according to the scriptures, was raised again according to the scriptures. So salvation is seen in all of this. But salvation is also comprehended in the doctrine of regeneration, of quickening, of application. Everyone for whom Christ died is really changed by the saving work of Jesus Christ. And that application is found in the Holy Spirit. And it's a real work. Paul describes it this way, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh among the children of disobedience. But God... God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved you, He changed you by His Spirit. He quickened you. Salvation is seen, it's understood in the life of everyone who is made to live in Christ. The Holy Spirit brings life, and where there is life, there is action. Where there is life, there is evidence. Salvation is understood in life. But salvation doesn't stop there. Salvation is comprehended in the fruit of that life, in the worship of Jesus Christ, in the acknowledgement of His Lordship, His power, and the service of Christ. We know this is a doctrine we call sanctification, which is a broad sweeping term that embodies everything from regeneration until natural death. It's what God does in you and is doing in you. He does it through the knowledge imparted in regeneration. There's knowledge there. But he does it through the knowledge of his gospel, the gospel and the preached word. It pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Salvation in the gospel. The gospel is an instrument of sanctification in the hands of Almighty God. Salvation is seen in the gospel. Sanctification includes the ordinances of God's church. Christ established while here on earth an organism, a body, the New Testament church, a structure for that church to exist in, for those churches to be established throughout all ages, world without end. And he says, I am with you. If two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. To do what? To exercise the authority and the responsibility of the church of Jesus Christ. The context there, I know, will say, well, no, that's not talking about worship. Okay, I'll accept that. It's talking about the church. And Jesus says, I'm not going to abandon my churches. I'm going to be present with you. And though it's two or three of you gathered together, I'm going to be in your midst. And it's not wrong to say, to, to use that old phrase, that old saying, that one man with the Lord is always a majority. He says, I'm with you if there's two or three of you. The church of Jesus Christ is a part of our salvation because the church of Jesus Christ is an instrument in the hands of the Lord for your sanctification. It's in the church of Jesus Christ that we, we hear the gospel preached. It's also in the church of Jesus Christ that we learn what it is to live in communion with fellow saints, what it is to be accountable to those who share an accountability to Jesus Christ, who have the word of God applied in our lives and who hold each other to a standard higher than any human standard. The church of Jesus Christ is a study in and of itself. The, the doctrines of ecclesiology matter. What does the church mean? How does the church operate? How does it function? And how do we aid one another in our salvation? But all of this comes under the broad heading of salvation. You say, well, I'm interested in salvation to heaven. I'm interested in the reason Jesus came. After all, the text says, he shall save his people from their sins. In Paul's inspired letter to the preacher Titus, who is struggling with 
being received in the churches as a young man who is now standing alone, separate from his mentor and authority figure, Paul, who's been sent by Paul to establish churches and to ordain elders in all of the churches and to set forth the the word of truth and the standard of faith and of understanding, Titus is dealing with those who are denying sound doctrine, who are seeking to serve Christ in their own way according to their own will and their own desire. And Paul is admonishing him and he's telling Titus, you don't be afraid of their faces, you go and you speak the word in truth and you exhort them and you speak sound doctrine and you establish principles of moral authority and of righteousness and of holiness and most of all you declare to them Jesus Christ. And as he comes down to the end of what we have divided as his second chapter, he says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The gospel proclaims the finished work of Christ, and with that it proclaims an accountability as subjects of His grace to live unto truth. We read about in the Colossian letter, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Serve Him, seek Him, honor Him, obey Him. In the Ephesian letter, the same message. In the Galatian letter, you're not free from the service of God, you're freed from the bondage of the law so you can truly serve God. And to serve Jesus Christ is to bear the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit has worked in you. To Titus, he says, the gospel has appeared to all men. The gospel teaches us to flee idolatry, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Soberly, with a right mind understanding things through the lens of the Scripture of God, understanding things with a view of eternity, understanding things with a view of a sovereign God, soberly, think soberly, that we should live soberly, that we should live righteously, holily, that we should do good works, that we should seek to emulate Jesus Christ. It's not wrong to wonder, what would Jesus have me to do? Wonder that, contemplate that, and do that, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. A God-centered life is a godly life. How often in our lives do we compartmentalize things? So on one hand, we think of ourselves as believers, we think of ourselves as Christians, but on another, we think about what makes practical sense, what's the best decision to make from a practical standpoint in life. And sometimes these are at odds with each other. No, we're not called to do that. We're to be godly. We're to be Christian. And that means we make our decisions not according to the will of the flesh and the mind, but according to the will of God. We don't do what makes sense. We do what God says is right. That was a struggle the Apostle Peter manifests over and over again. No, Lord, if you're the Savior, if you're the Messiah, you don't go to Jerusalem and there suffer and bleed and die. You stay away from those people until we're of a, of, a, of a position that we can destroy those people and put you on your throne. It's the way we like to think about it. There's people today who do that. Their whole mentality as Christians is, we've got to set up a kingdom so Christ can come and reign. No, my friends, Jesus Christ is reigning today. And He's not dependent on us to set up or establish His kingdom. And whatever your position is on eschatology, understand this. When Christ comes back, He's coming back victorious. He is the Lord and He is the King. And He's not dependent on us to prepare anything for Him. The Lord will have His way. The Lord will have His will. The Lord is King now and forevermore. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. What's the present world? It's right now. It was true of Titus in his day 2,000 years ago. He needed to live soberly, righteously, godly in that world. And today we need to live soberly, righteously, and godly in our world. 
The Christian life, the Christian profession, the Christian witness is not changed by the environment in which it's lived. Our, our requirements of Scripture are not subjective to the human experience or the culture in which we live. When we read commands of Scripture, we don't have the license to say, well, that was for their time, but we live in a different time. When we read things about how the church is to be structured, we don't say, well, that was for their time, but this is our time. The culture's different, the needs are different, and therefore the way we apply the Scripture is different. This isn't just a book of principle to be applied however we choose to. It's not a book of morality only. It's a book of instruction, of rules, of law, of establishment. Because God doesn't change. That means His Word doesn't change. And the application of His Word is always right. It doesn't mean we in the church don't sometimes get it wrong. But the Word of God is always right. This present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, salvation is comprehended in the last things. When this life is o'er and we're here no more, we'll live on. Salvation is comprehended in the death of His saints. What a glorious, glorious release. What a glorious salvation to close our eyes on all the cares of this world, all the struggles, all the temptations of the flesh. Have that glorious release into the presence of God. What a blessing it is to read in His Scripture when that thief on the cross said, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus says, I will today shalt thou be with me in paradise. No, that scripture more than any other ought to give us hope. Not just the ancillary things, the fact that a thief who moments before was cursing Jesus was now praising him, that's wonderful. But just the reality of the import of those words, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. When your loved ones die, if they die in Christ Jesus, that moment they are in his presence, in fullness of joy. Salvation is comprehended in the death of His saints. Salvation is comprehended in the return of the Savior. What a day that will be. We look for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Savior, our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's coming again. The church has always confessed this, the imminent return of Jesus Christ. It's a real thing. He's coming back. And Paul is inspired to write of it in such wonderful language. He's going to come with the sound of trumpets. He's going to come with the brightness of the noonday sun. He's going to come in a way that cannot be ignored. And when he comes, every knee is going to bow. Even those who crucified him, even those who cursed him, they're going to look upon him and their knees are going to bow, albeit involuntarily. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. We're looking for that blessed hope. We're looking for the glorious appearing of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the coming of Christ on that day. Oh, that's salvation. Why is it salvation? Deliverance into His presence, certainly. Deliverance from the sinful existence on this earth, definitely. It's deliverance, it's salvation also because the wicked are going to be there on that day. Jesus Christ describes it this way in Matthew 25. The Lord, the Lord is going to sit on his throne of judgment. He's going to divide his sheep from the goats. All nations are going to be gathered before him. Everyone who's ever lived, everyone who's ever drawn breath, Everyone who's never drawn breath, everyone assembled before him. He's going to speak to those on his right. He's going to say, come, ye blessed of my father, inherit a kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Again, it announces to us boldly, Christ wasn't a second chance. He wasn't an alternate plan. He wasn't a backup in God's mind. From before the foundation of the world, a kingdom was prepared specifically for you because you're His people and He saved you from your sins. 
and this ultimate salvation. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit a kingdom. To those on the left, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Every salvation is accompanied by damnation. The reason it's deliverance is because there's an alternative out there. Salvation is comprehended in this. But let's look at what Paul says to Titus. You know, it's just astounding. We hit these words in Scripture that just speak to us, looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God, our Savior Jesus Christ. But Paul gives a little more about our Savior Jesus Christ here, who gave himself for us. Who gave himself for us. We've already talked about that. Here it speaks of it. He gave himself for us. Jesus Christ, in the Philippian letter we're told, though he was equal with God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, he made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He gave himself us. The condescension of Jesus Christ, that is our salvation. He gave himself for us. We all agree to that, but what does Paul say about him here? That he might redeem us from all iniquity. You say, well, yeah, he redeemed us from the curse of sin. That's not what he says. That he might redeem us from all iniquity. When Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, paying the price for our sins, He was also giving himself that he might redeem us from the actuality of sin. That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. The sanctification of the elect of God was comprehended in Christ on the cross. He gave himself that he might purify you. He might purify me. That he might... Purify us unto himself. Again, it's not about us. It's not about giving us a home in heaven. It's not about what we're going to get out of it. Jesus Christ on the cross. He had you, he had me on his heart. But Jesus Christ on the cross wasn't suffering so that he could give something to you or give something to me. The Hebrew letter says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Christ in the garden prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. The joy that Jesus Christ had before him was fulfillment of that covenant made with his Father. That covenant made by God in himself in Trinity to save His people for His glory. And salvation is not about you and me. As much as we are the objects of salvation, we are not the object of the plan of salvation. A peculiar people, purified to Himself, we belong to Him, we're His, zealous of good works. What I understand from this scripture as Paul writes to Titus is, that the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, it's much broader than what it takes to get us to heaven when we die. It's much bigger than what Jesus Christ did on the cross and legally accomplished on the cross. The salvation that Jesus Christ procured for his people from their sins extends all the way to the decisions you and I make each day that we live. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And that means to eradicate the iniquity that is in my life. And what is iniquity? It's related to inequity. It's what's not right. It's anything that's not correct. Because Christ Jesus gave himself to to purify his people, a peculiar people unto himself, whereby in his word he says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And we're commanded to be like Christ. Why? Because he predestined us before the foundation of the world to be conformed to the image of his son, to be like Christ. 
He gave himself to redeem us from iniquity, to purify to himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And Paul writes to Titus and says, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. The message of our salvation is the message of a full salvation, a work of God beginning to end, a work that started before the world was ever created, before any of us had earthly existence, before we had existence in reality. And Jesus Christ fulfilled the covenant that he made with his Father. He did the work. And lest there be any doubt, Jesus Christ on the cross in agony, at the end of that period of darkness, cried out with a loud voice and said, It is finished. He said, before the suffering on the cross, to the Father, I finished the work which thou gavest me to do. The work of Jesus Christ. It was a work of suffering. It was a work of redemption. He suffered that which was due to you and me for our sin nature and for our sins of practice. Every sin demands justice. As the song says, every sin demands a tear. And Jesus Christ suffered for our sins according to the Scripture. Jesus Christ procured a human righteousness for each and every one that he represented in this life and on the cross. Jesus Christ was holy. He was without sin, impeccable and pure. He was tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin. And that righteousness as our representative is imputed to everyone for whom Christ died. We are made the righteousness of God in him. The gospel declares this truth. And the gospel declares to you and I that we must, if we are in Jesus Christ, deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. It doesn't mean we're going to be sinlessly perfect. That's unattainable. But it means our desire and our heart is going to be committed to righteousness in Christ Jesus. And it means when we fail and when we fall and when we sin, there will be a conviction of that sin because Jesus Christ died to purify us from that iniquity and to set right that which was wrong. Teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Teaching us to live sober. We live in a world in which the vast majority of mankind are drunk. Drunk on their own lust. Drunk on their own self-righteousness, self-glory. Every man is right in his own eyes. But in the eyes of God, every man is guilty. All the world, Paul says, they become guilty before God, soberly. Sobriety begins with an acknowledgement of our own sin, our own inadequacy, our own iniquity. I can do nothing by myself. You can do nothing to please God. Not all the works of charity will be pleasing to God. Not all the public displays of righteousness will be pleasing to God. Without faith, he says, it's impossible to please God. Sobriety says, I am nothing, and I can do nothing. And God doesn't need me. The world doesn't need me. But I need God, soberly. Sobriety starts with a real view of ourselves. And we can't view ourselves without first viewing God. Sobriety is a real view of God. 
Who is God? God is holy. God is righteous. God is the creator of all things, and by virtue of that, He's the ruler of all things. And everything God does is right, and everything God does is just, and everything God does is perfect. And if I don't understand the perfections of God's works, the weaknesses in me, because remember, I am broken, I am iniquity, I am unrighteous. But God does right. And all of his works are glorious. A sober mind tells me that. And it means I can face any trial of life, I can face any loss, I can face any affliction, I can face any difficulty, and do so in confidence knowing that I am a broken person in a broken world, but I serve an unbroken God, teaching us that we should live soberly. And a sober mind cannot but result in righteousness, righteously. I can begin to live righteously when I have a right view of God and of man. When I see myself before a holy and just God, I'm not going to balk at his commandments. I'm not going to war against them. I'm not going to turn aside. Because I'm going to say he's right and I'm wrong. And I'm going to say with Jesus Christ, not my will, but thy will be done. The difference being Christ's will was perfectly aligned with his father's. No other man could say as he did in John's gospel, I do always those things that please my father in heaven. But a sober mind is a righteous mind. A righteous mind is a godly. Way back in the Garden of Eden, a place without sin, a man without sin was confronted by the author of lies. And God was questioned for the first time. Yea, hath God said, What you don't know, Eve and Adam, is that God knows if you eat of this fruit that he's commanded you not to, you'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. And from that day to this, the desire of the pride of man's heart has been to be like God. But here we have the command of God in the gospel to live godly. What does that mean? Does that mean to be like God? It does, but the only way to be godly is to have a right view of God and of this world. To a degree, that's why we'll never achieve that godliness while we live on this earth. We can seek righteousness, we can seek holiness, we can seek understanding of God through His Word, and we can understand the things that are revealed to us. But if any man says, I understand fully God, that is to declare that we ourselves are God. Because God's word tells us his ways are above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. His ways are better than our ways. His thoughts are better than our thoughts. And no man can come to God. No man can comprehend God. In fact, a full understanding, a full view of God would destroy man from off of the earth. Even Moses who said, Lord, let me see your face. God said, I can't do that. You can't see my face and live. I'll show you my hinder parts. And even that caused Moses' face to glow so that he had to put a veil over it to not blind those who looked upon him. To live soberly, righteously, and godly. There the word godly means to live according to the understanding that's been given us of God. You say, well, how do I do that? How do I know about God? How can God communicate himself to man? Well, he's done it in his word. And that's why the scripture tells us, Paul again writing to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed, God-spoken, God-communicated. And all scripture is profitable. All Scripture is profitable. Somebody mentioned that this morning, I think. All of the Word of God, beginning to end, has value. Now, how often do we just take books of the Bible and and 
you know, set them aside and say that just has no value, no profit. We don't even know what it's doing in there. People have done that with various books of the Bible at various times. They've said, well, we don't need all of those genealogies. We don't need all those names, those lists of names. We don't need the book of Esther. You know, the name of God isn't even mentioned in that book. We don't need that book. It shouldn't be there. You know, maybe some book we have trouble understanding. We say, well, that's just too hard. We don't need to consider it. The book of Revelation. There's a lot of disagreement, a lot of argument over it, a lot of controversy. We just need to lay that aside. It doesn't matter. No, he says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. To ignore any scripture, to relegate any scripture to a dust heap, is to say there are some words of God that don't matter. It's not to be found there. To live godly is to understand what God has communicated of himself and to live in that view. The grace of God that bringeth salvation. We understand that salvation is accomplished by Jesus Christ and applied by His Holy Spirit. We understand there's nothing that man can do to change the saving work of Jesus Christ. There's nothing man can do to save save himself if he's unsaved, and there's nothing man can do to separate himself from the love of God if he's saved. And yet, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, men teaching us. There is salvation in the Word of God. There is salvation in a godly life. There is salvation in the Holy Spirit's work, His ongoing work in the lives of everyone who He's chosen. And it all goes back ultimately to God's purpose before this world was created. But it can all be traced back to that one focal point of human history when Jesus Christ walked up that hill gave himself on the cross, and he secured forever salvation, all salvation for every saint from Adam to the last saint born in this world, secured in Christ on the cross. And Jesus Christ in that death, in that suffering, comprehended that entire work for every one for whom he died. And that speaks to you and me right now. Jesus Christ was contemplating my existence and my obedience and my sin. He was contemplating the deliverance that the gospel is in my life and the change that it's had in my life. And he was contemplating the opportunity that I would be given to live for his glory and for you to live for his glory. The influence that you and I will have on those who work with us, play with us, live around us, on our children, on our grandchildren, on our fellow church members, on the community, the city, the state, the nation in which we live. All of that is a work of God. All of that is a work of His grace. And all of that was embodied in Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us. He might redeem us from all iniquity. That he might purify unto himself a peculiar people. If you fit in too well, if you're not peculiar, Christ's not finished working with you. He's going to make you peculiar. Brother Leroy, I think the Lord's made that evident in you. Peculiar. That's a good thing. Brother Ray, I know it's true of you. I know it's true of each of you. That's why you're here on a Saturday afternoon when a lot of other opportunities called. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, it changes lives and it changes the world. And that too is the saving work of God. You can't even look at world history. You can't look at American history without seeing God doing miraculous works through his gospel. And it's not the men. It's not the churches. It's not the individuals. It's God. And God uses divers and various and strange means. If you study the Word of God as we have it today in our hands, 
It is amazing the means God used to preserve and to translate this word. I once had a friend who had a cousin who was studying history and was wanting to write a book, and his approach to writing the book was he was sick of reading biographies and histories that highlighted the the, the heroes in the family lineage. So he titled the book he was writing In Search of Horse Thieves. He was looking for the disreputable in his family heritage and wanted to write about all the bad guys that had contributed to where they were today. Well, if you write a true accounting of the heritage of the church and the heritage of the Word of God especially, there's some guys you wouldn't want to claim in that lineage. And you know, that's by the sovereign will of God. Not unto us, not unto us, but unto His name be glory. Jesus Christ died. He gave Himself. He gave Himself to redeem us from all iniquity. He purifies to Himself a peculiar people. And He did it successfully. And you and I stand here today as testimonies of His grace, of His love, and His sovereign power. If we can acknowledge that, if we can be sober, if we can be righteous, if we can be godly, then Jesus Christ, more than 2,000 years since his death, will be glorified in us. And his work, his work will testify of his reality, of his glory. And God will be honored in you, and you will then have a worthwhile existence, a life that is of value. Because again, remember, there is no good thing that doesn't glorify God and testify of His grace. Thank you for your time and your attention.